Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Peter Hoskin, Arts and Books Editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by the independent filmmaker Nina Menkes to discuss her new documentary, Brainwashed, Sex, Camera, Power, which concerns the male gaze in cinema, but also beyond. And I should say, it's the beyond part that's really fascinating here. Because this is a discussion that will touch on some inside cinema stuff, like feminist film theory of the 1970s, but also Harvey Weinstein, the Me Too movement, and how we objectify women and other people everywhere. So, you know, some of the biggest topics of today. Anyway, Nina, before all that, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Well, so I hope you don't mind if I start our chat with the most important subject of all, which is me. Um, or, or rather, my experience of watching Brainwashed for the first time several weeks ago. I know I've actually shared this story um, with you before because we we conducted a Zoom interview um, for a, a print interview in the latest issue of the magazine. Um, but it's, it's nice to be able to relay it to you face-to-face, as it were. Um, so as I've already told you, before going into Brainwashed, I was excited because I'd seen some of your fiction films before and liked them very much. Phantom Love is a favourite of mine. And, and here is a documentary by Nina Menke. So, yeah, I was excited. But I must admit, I wasn't that excited. You know, I, I'd read, so Laura Mulvey is the great film theorist who wrote about the male gaze and coined the term back in the 1970s. And I'd read her famous essay on the male gaze. And part of me thought, what else is there to say? You know, I'll, I'll agree with Nina's film, but I wasn't sure what more you or it could say. So I went to see it several weeks ago, and I must admit, it for me, it was a totally revelatory experience. And I mean that in the fullest sense of those words, in that it has literally, this all sounds like hyperbole, but it has literally changed how I watch cinema. There has not been a film I've watched since that I haven't looked at it through the prism of brainwashed and what those films are doing with the way they choose their shots and the way they show their female characters so first of all like you because that is quite a rare experience but um second of all how the hell did you pull that off Uh, would you just talk about how you've taken us from laura mulvey her famous essay back in the 1970s to to now and to brainwash? What was that process? Well, it was quite a long process, actually. Basically, it started with my my own experience at film school. 
I had made a feature film called Magdalena Viraga, which is also playing over at the BFI this month, about a prostitute who hates her work. And the film had no shots of her taking off her clothes. It had a lot of sex scenes that just focused on her face. And the film was very acclaimed. It got a LA Film Critics Award. It showed in festivals all over the world in Toronto. And I thought, like, okay, I've made it. I mean, this was a film I made for $5,000 at film school, and now someone's going to call and give me a deal, and I'm going to make another film. And no, nothing. Crickets. Just just no response from the film industry at all. And because of that, I started teaching to make a living, and I made my film sort of on the side. And through the process of teaching production, not theory, because I really knew nothing about film theory, I started putting clips together for my students to point out some, you know, specific ways that shot design is gendered. And this was really the beginning of a process that lasted for more than 20 years. And it was only after two huge you know, culture, cultural earthquakes. The first one being the investigation in the United States, the EEOC investigation, the federal investigation into the studios for severe sex discrimination in the film industry, in which they were threatened with hundreds of millions of dollars of fines if they didn't shape up. And that was in 2015. And that was followed very quickly with the by the Me Too movement. And those two events really rocked my world because I understood how shot design and these other issues were really entwined in one big devil's knot. And I wrote an essay about it for Filmmaker Magazine, which went viral. And after that, I was invited all around the world to give my talk. And everywhere I gave the talk, I was bombarded by people basically saying, please make this into a movie. So it really was not my idea. It came, it seemed there was a real need for the film. So these two big contextual events have yeah. happened, Me Too and the EEOC investigation. Yeah. Could, could you have got this film made before? Could you have got it released, distributed before they happened? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, you'll notice in in Brainwashed, Eliza Hittman, the American director, mentions in her interview, she says that in 2013, she went to Sundance with her first feature and couldn't get an agent, couldn't get distribution, nothing. She was nothing. And, you know, I had four films at Sundance over the years, four features that got rave reviews, nothing, nothing, nothing. It wasn't until 2015 with the EEOC and the Me Too that suddenly there was a space, there was a cultural space. It dawned on people, you know, that, oh, that's true. You know, when you say director, film director, it means male film director. If you Google film director, you get a long stretch of male Spielberg, Tarantino, Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it was it's really incredible that at this time in history it's it's really only in the last few years that this subject has been really 
something that is considered important and that people recognize as important because before it was just poo-pooed. You've you've touched implicitly on what I'd say are the three pillars of brainwashed, which are shop design. And I feel that's the terrain where you're overlapping a bit with Laura Mulvey and the things that she said in the in the 1970s about how the very way that a, a shot in a film is designed serves to objectify women the female body all the rest of it but you've also touched on the other two pillars which are i guess the lack of opportunities for women in the film industry and then the more awful pathological stuff around sexual abuse and rape and Harvey Weinstein should we dwell on the first of those before going on to the other two which which is shot design because i think for people who haven't seen brainwashed one of the things that's important to communicate is that what you're doing here is you're offering a commentary on various shots taken from real films and showing how they objectify women and these films are not teenage sex comedies they're not scurrilous movies from the 1970s we're really talking here about the films of martin scorsese the films of spike lee the films of Jean-Luc Godard, you know, the real titans of cinema, the real sacred cows. I'm assuming that was a conscious choice on your part. Absolutely. I think that two things I want to mention, most people have heard the phrase, the objectification of women, but it's it's kind of just thrown around, you know. And so the idea in Brainwashed is to say, well, if you have an object, you have a subject. Objects don't exist in a vacuum. An object has a subject. Who's the subject? Who's the object? And how is that constructed visually? And how is that constructed visually in a way that forms like a cinematic law that it seems very few people have the courage to go against? And like you said, we are not looking very on purpose, not looking at so-called B-movies. We are not looking at car advertisements, and we're not looking at music videos. We're looking at the A-list. We're looking at the con winners, at the Academy Award winners. We're looking at the top directors, the gods of cinema. And an amazing amount of those people have done it and continue to do it. And you can see it across decades. You can see it across genres. You can see it across sexes, too. It's not only men who do it. We have included films by Sofia Coppola. Uh, and it's it's really always been considered like a cinematic law. Yeah. And it's an unspoken law, of course. It's so normalized that nobody notices it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the centerpiece, actually, of Brainwash for me was your analysis of a sequence in Scorsese's Raging Bull. Would you mind talking us through that a little bit? It's the poolside scene, and I think that will give our listeners an idea of what you're all up right. to. Well, that's an interesting scene because it's, first of all, Raging Bull is, you know, an acknowledged masterpiece, and the film is in many ways ab- about this macho persona that's played by Robert De Niro. And the scene that we break down is you see Robert De Niro and his friend at the swimming pool, and it's the first time that he sees Vicky, the love interest, who's, of course, the object of desire. And we have a shot of Robert De Niro and his friend, and they're chatting with each other. We hear their whole conversation, and they look over, and they see Vicky, and she's far away. And we see her mouth moving. We don't hear her, of course, because she's far away. And then there's, there are a bunch of other shots, and there are also shots of some other guys talking. And it's a whole, you know, it's a whole beautiful scene. But what I noticed in breaking it down is that when you're watching the scene— 
you're made to sort of believe that the scene is from the point of view of Robert De Niro, and he's very far away from Vicky, so that makes a lot of sense. We hear Robert De Niro talk, but we don't hear Vicky talk, even though she's moving her mouth, because she's far away, and it's his point of view, right? But when we do a bit of a deeper dive, we realize that there are two other men who are sitting right next to Vicky, who are equidistant from Robert De Niro, and those two men are chatting, and we hear every word. So there's only one character who doesn't have a voice, and that happens to be Vicky. Correct. So, so Scorsese, we could almost say he's subverting the laws of physics. He's subverting the laws of physics, so it's sort of like ideology above data, you might say. Of course, I mean, like, I must admit, I, I even chase, so I love brainwash, but I, I chafe against some of this yeah. because you're talking about Raging Bull here. Love Raging Bull. Yeah. I think in particular, you know, you've picked certain scenes from certain directors and I chafed against your inclusion of my beloved Paul Thomas Anderson and Park Chan-wook as well, the South Korean director. I think you include clips from The Handmaiden in mm-hmm. that. And, and I, I came out of the cinema as much as I thought, you know, this was great. I was also thinking, oh, but shouldn't have included Paul Thomas Anderson that that scene in Phantom Threads is trying to do something else and I was going through and then I started thinking of Park Chan-wook's Lady Vengeance which I rewatched for the first time in years recently and I, and I feel that's quite a good film in its depiction of women um, and I was having this sort of internal argument with myself but then I realised is that beside the point you know I I assume you're trying here to illustrate something much bigger but also you are opening yourself up to criticism from people who want to defend their favorites. Is, is that something you've discovered? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the things that's really hard for people to kind of grasp or maybe not grasp, maybe they grasp it, but they don't want to grasp it, is that <clears throat> we are not talking about a larger context like some sometimes people say well this particular this particular shot makes sense because it was done you know with this intention in mind or it was done because it makes sense within this scene da 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 but what we what we're really trying to point out is that regardless of the context you will see these laws of cinema reproduced. Now that doesn't mean that if you see a certain shot design reproduced in this context or in this context, it may have different meaning. There are a lot of things that contribute to making meaning in a film, right? But what we're saying is that there is this meta message, this shot design gendered law that runs it's like an underground river that runs throughout so many of our so-called favorite films that is whether it's you know a film from asia or france or hollywood it's interesting that they all do the same thing when it comes to shot design and that's the point and the other point is that it's so normalized that nobody notices it it's only after you pointed out. I mean, I had a woman come up to me and say, I love your film. It's kind of what, like similar to what you said. You know, I love your movie. Thank you for making it. But you've ruined all my favorite films. You know, so are you going to look at your favorite films a little differently after you see Brainwashed? Maybe you will. Now, it's important for me to add that I am not saying that these films are bad films. 
In fact, in order to be included in Brainwashed, we really had a number of, you know, checklists that we wanted to hit. And one of them was that the scenes were great and the scenes were powerful and beautifully shot. We did not choose films that were like blah or who cares, you know. It's right to say, Nina, actually, that you included one of your very favourite films. That's true. Which is Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Yeah. So that was on your top 10 films of all time for sight and sound. I I think it's a genius work and it's um, a stunning cinematic masterpiece and it includes sort of the prototypical sequence of the male gaze. So it's really a tool, you know. It's not, I'm, I'm not into cancel culture. I'm not saying get rid of these movies. I'm saying be aware. Be aware. I feel... The criticism that you've received from some critics and from some audience members, some viewers, obviously it's centred on people defending their favourites, defending yeah. Scorsese or whoever. But it's it's been most, I guess, loud. It's been most pronounced in the case of the, the, the women directors that you cite in Brainwash. So you've already mentioned one. You use some scenes from Sofia Coppola movies. Catherine Bigelow gets called out, the director of The Hurt Locker. And... Actually, speaking to women film critics in, in my acquaintance and people I know, that's what angers them the most, actually, because, yeah. say, in Catherine Bigelow's case, they think, oh, well, you know, this is a woman doing great in Hollywood, and you say that here she is and she's worked with an all-male crew. That couldn't have been avoided. And this, to a lot of women in my acquaintance, at least, seems unfair. Yeah. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, unfair, I, you know, sexual discrimination is unfair. I mean... I'm not trying to be fair. What I'm trying to do is point out how there's a cinematic law that everybody follows regardless of their body shape. So I'm not saying that Catherine Bigelow had, could, should have done something different or even had the option to do something different. I'm sure when she went to hire her crew, there she probably didn't even... Were there any women qualified that were around as far as the studio is concerned? The whole system was so deeply sexist, but that's not the point here. What I'm pointing out is how regardless of whether you have a male body or a female body or any other body in between, isn't it interesting that everybody follows the same cinematic law? That's the point. That's the point. And showing also, in the case of her locker, that, yes, there was a woman director, but her crew was 100%. All the department heads were 100% male. I'm just pointing it out. I found it myself shocking because when we were looking at clips and and then, okay, first woman to win an Academy Award, oh, my God, look at that. She follows the law. The law is... You know, um, men in action are shot in slow motion. The film that won was all men in military, in slow motion, action. You know, that's part of that's part of the canon. That's what you're supposed to do. You don't show a bunch of women in slow motion in action. No, when women are in slow motion, they're sexualized, right? So anyway, so she's following this law. And then when we were, we had already put the clip into the movie. And then I was looking at the IMDb credits list and I was suddenly struck by the fact that even though it was a woman director, 
look at this, look at this credit list. And I just decided, I said, let's just put the credit list into the film. It says so much. It speaks about the problem. It's not a question of blaming her. It's, that's really not the point. The point is, let's look at a systemic problem and let's think about this systemic problem. So in a way you're saying even Catherine Bigelow is trapped within. Catherine Bigelow. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. After the break, we'll talk more about how Hollywood has taught us to objectify women. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. Okay. There's another criticism that's come up from my conversations, which is concerning sex. And Brainwashed is not all about sex. It's not about sex scenes, although it touches on that. But there's this argument, and this came up in some of the reviews in America as well, that somehow Brainwashed is a little bit prudish in some way, that you're anti-sex or yeah. being sex negative. Again, you know, what would you say to that? Well, I, for me, it's a little hard to grasp that argument if you've actually seen the film. We, spend, we spent quite a bit of time in the last third of the film showing some sex scenes that are shot differently. I don't see anything prudish about this watermelon woman by Cheryl Dunier. I don't see anything prudish about My Own Private Idaho by Gus Van Zandt. I don't see anything prudish about those. I mean, we showed a bunch of sex scenes that are shot where the woman is not put into the object position, but they're very sexy. Just to be clear, Nina, they're films that you celebrate in Brainwash for the way they shoot their sex scenes. I'm saying that there's... What we're what we're critiquing is not sex. What we're critiquing is how sex scenes are systematically positioned where there's a subject who's almost always in a heterosexual sex scene, a male, and where the woman is objectified and they're shot very differently. 
that's what we're critiquing. And we, in fact, me and the editor had quite a discussion about it. We said, we really want to make sure that people understand that we are not, quote unquote, prudish. We wanted to put quite a few, I think we have four or five examples of scenes that are very sexual, naked bodies, but there isn't that setup of subject object that has become the so-called law. So if if people watch the whole film, it's quite strange to me that they would come up. I, I don't know how they come up with that, really. I mean, I think that they just get so upset that they just sort of shut down and they can't think critically. Let's move on from the criticisms, because I know that Brainwash has also received a hugely positive response. Yeah. Um, but let's also move on from this first pillar of shot choice, and let's make the leap. Okay. How do you get from the visual language of cinema to Harvey Weinstein? Well, what became clear to me, I mean, I, I think it was intuitively clear to me all along, and I think... Probably any woman who's lived on here on planet Earth also intuitively understands this. But, you know, if you're portrayed and, you know, continually represented as an object, an object is not a subject, right? I mean, it's really this difference between subject and object is, is the key thing. So if you're continually objectified and not given subjecthood and agency in, you know, film after film after film after film after acclaim film after acclaim film, and that, and on top of that, you have everybody on the set until very recently, 95% of the people on a set were heterosexual guys. How is this affecting when you walk off the set and into the office? We have today, you know, Trump is, we're awaiting a verdict on a, on a sexual assault case for a man who was the president of the United States. Harvey Weinstein was the most powerful guy in Hollywood for decades. And he regularly, and he's of course not alone, regularly assumed that every single actress who walked into his office was his sexual plaything. And if they weren't, they were discarded and blacklisted. So it's not real hard to make that connection. You know, in, in the film, we talk about the Ralph Waldo Emerson quote where he says, perception is not whimsical, it's fatal. The way you perceive someone is the way that you relate to them, the way that you, ex your expectations of them, your, the salary that you pay them, everything is involved in perception. Now, if women are primarily portrayed and perceived as sex objects for the use and pleasure of a male subject, how can that not be central to the epidemic, the worldwide epidemic of sexual assault and sexual abuse? You, me you mentioned a worldwide epidemic, epidemic. This obviously goes beyond cinema. Absolutely. Well what do we need to fix first or, or can one be fixed first? Because obviously film feeds the wider culture, yeah. feeds the way that boys act in school or people act in their workplaces. But at the same time, that wider culture feeds into film. Right. You know, we've talked a lot about how it's sort of male dominated crews and things like that. So what, what do we fix first? 
Can either be fixed. <laughs> I, I don't know. I th- I think my personal um, my personal belief is that consciousness is transformational. I believe that consciousness has an illuminating power, and if enough people become aware of something, change starts to happen. You know, it can't just be 20 people in the ivory tower who read Laura Mulvey. It has to be a much broader sort of base, you know, like the hundred monkey thing. And I I think that that is happening. It's happening in a lot of different directions. We have the Me Too movement did happen. The EEOC investigation did happen. I hope that Brainwash is contributing the element of shot design and how that is also a part of the puzzle. It's not the whole puzzle. Hopefully, the more these issues spread and the more people become aware of them, you can't do the same thing anymore. You know, they've proven this in physics, right? You have a particle and it's been proven in physics that if you put attention on that particle, that particle will change, not might change, will change. So it's it's my belief that this conversation today, you know, the film, all the things that are happening around us, it is going to start to change how women, you know, feel about ourselves. You know, there was recently a big scandal in the United States and the big CNN anchor Don Lemon made a comment on the air and he was referring to the U.S. presidential candidate or I don't know if she's announced, but potential candidate, Nikki Haley. And and he said that she was beyond her prime and that women are in their prime at 20, 30, and 40. I mean, he said this on the air like a month ago, two months ago. And there was a huge uproar about it. And he had to retract and they took him off the air for three days. It's like slap on the wrist. But the fact that someone could say something like that you know, just shows you how much work there is to be done. On the other hand, the fact that there was a huge outcry about it is at least, it does show there, there, you know, it's a, it's slow, but there is a little bit of a shift. Which brings me to the question of who brainwashed is for, Mm -hmm. because you say that you hope maybe to contribute to women's self-perception I guess change how they you said change how we view ourselves but it also seems to me that it's dumb men like me who possibly have the most to gain from brainwashing like who is it for is it for everyone or it's for everyone who watches movies which is probably almost everyone it's certainly not only for women in fact some of the some of our strongest supporters have been men and I think that you know In a different way, men have been a victim of this because how, you know, you can't have really, really meaningful relationship between a subject and an object. You know, a a meaningful relationship is between two subjects. Everybody stands to lose when it's, you know, subject-object. And uh, the interesting thing about Brainwashed, actually, is that, judging from reactions, we've had wonderful reactions from extremely sophisticated cinephiles like yourself, like the director of the Sundance Film Festival, director of the Berlinale Film Festival, people who know cinema, you know, filmmakers, Celine Schiama, you know, a lot of different 
Julie Dash, who's also in the film, but, you know, who announced that it was essential viewing to see the movie before you make, before you go out and shoot your film. So a lot of very sophisticated people have responded to it, as well as people who are just regular people who are not in the film industry, who are just film goers, who have been consuming these images without that critical lens. And so the film was really, in that sense, I think I'm really happy and I I feel like the film is a success and that it really has touched a wide range of people. You You don't have to be a film high-level film critic to get the film. But on the other hand, if you are, I have heard enough times that people like that are still shocked, like yourself. You know, yeah, I know it, you know, and I see movies and I'm very sophisticated, but I didn't realize. I think that having the 200 film clips one after another from all these A-list films in a row, I mean, it was even shocking for me. I was making the film. I was like, oh, my God, it's overwhelming. When I saw the film, I thought, like, how can any woman even wake up, have coffee, and do anything? Because we are bombarded with this stuff. What what does better look like? I mean, you give some examples of better filmmaking in Brainwashed. But if we're talking about a better Hollywood, a better system, we use that word a lot, system, I think of your career. And you've thrived, you might tell me you haven't, but certainly artistically you've thrived outside the system. You've Your films, which I should say there's a season of them on this month at the BFI, so people can really catch up on them. But all of your films, they break the rules of Hollywood. They don't objectify women. And you've done that outside the system. Do you want the system to bend so that it includes more people like you? Do you want it to have more people with your sensibilities? Or do you just want the system to go away? Do you want a thousand independent filmmakers out there? Well, you know, what I want, I don't know. I want a lot of things. <laughs> I want money to make my new film. I think that the that I hope, I do hope that a space is opening up for more voices and more perspectives in the world of cinema. And I think that is happening. It's still very slow, but it is happening. And, you know, if perception is fatal and there's one, there's been one sort of overriding perception, which is that women's are in their prime and are have their primary use as, you know, objects for the sexual gratification and are otherwise, you know, invisible. I mean, that's a that's a very terrible thing for the world. It means that half the world, the perception of half the world, the experience of half the world isn't getting screen time. But, you know, I, I, I want to say that I want to, say that there, you know, change is happening. I mean, um, there, there is an awareness and there is, I think, in many ways, a desire to change as much as there's a backlash. You know, there's certainly a backlash. I mean, the election of Trump in itself could be seen as one big backlash. You know, the, the, the fact that the Access Hollywood tape was played publicly on every radio station and he was still elected shows I I think that he wasn't elected despite that tape he was elected because of that tape there were a lot of people who were like yeah squash that 
women power movement, you know, we, we want this guy to represent. You know, I, I, I must admit, I don't want to end on Donald Trump. No, let's not end on Donald <laughs> So let's, let's, you've already said change is happening. Yeah. Let's give listeners of the Prospect podcast some examples of movies they can go check out right now, apart from Brainwash, apart from your own films, mm-hmm. that you think are doing good. Well, I mean, the movie She Said, I think is quite an interesting movie. Of course, it's about the Harvey Weinstein story that started the Me Too movement. But on the level of cinema, you have the two main characters are the journalists. And they are both photographed like regular people. They're not given that glam treatment. They're not sexualized. It's about them as human beings, and it focuses primarily on their work, what they're doing, meaning their subjects. And both the women in the film also have families, and they're they're babies, and there's a husband in the background. But interestingly, the husband is sort of the peripheral character around both the women and the babies and the the struggle that the women are having with you know juggling sort of motherhood and their and their job is sort of there in the story even though it's not the main story and you know even the main editor at the New York Times and I'm not sure if this is based on truth or they did that in for the for the screenplay but is also a woman and that's the subtext of the story that is really pretty radical. It's really radical. It's like I was watching and thinking, wow, I don't know. You know, it's a film where the two main characters have husbands who are who are in the background and the main thing is focusing on their job. Not to mention the content, of course, of, of the investigation, which was the Harvey Weinstein expose. So... I guess, I mean, that's the hopeful note I wanted. Yeah. Um, Hollywood can do it differently. Hollywood can when they want to. Well, let's end it there. Thanks so much to Nina for joining us. And please do go check out Brainwashed Sex Camera Power when it opens in UK cinemas on 12th of May. That's this Friday. And if you're in London, you've got the treat of an entire season of Nina's films at the BFI's South Bank base throughout May. If you enjoyed this podcast, then grab a copy of the brand new issue of Prospect magazine, which hits newsstands today. It includes my print interview with Nina, of course, as well as our cover story, The Prince versus the Press by Tom Lamont, which tells the inside story of the bitter battle between Harry and the newspapers that hounded him and how the phone hackers of the past have switched sides to help him. Plus, writing from Laura Barton, David Willits, Donald McIntyre and many more. And while you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Sarah Collins and Mike Brearley. It's honestly a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it will make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you can get your podcast or click on the link in the show notes of this episode.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.